Hello and welcome back to the Clinical Update podcast from MIMS Learning. I'm Pat Anderson, editor of MIMS Learning. Cancer and its diagnosis and management represents an enormous challenge for healthcare professionals. As well as fast-moving developments in diagnosis and treatment to keep abreast of, there are more timeless challenges around good communication and treating your patient according to their individual needs. In this episode, we're very privileged to have with us an extremely experienced cancer physician from the USA to talk to Sangeeta Krishnan and me about diagnosis, treatment and personalised medicine. So we'd like to extend a very warm welcome to Dr. Robert Yuzo, President and CEO of the Fox Chase Cancer Centre in Philadelphia. So... Could you please tell us a little bit about yourself and your current role? Well, certainly. First, thank you for having me today. Uh, I am, as you say, the president and CEO of one of uh, the U.S.'s 70-plus comprehensive cancer centers as designated by our National Cancer Institute. I am a physician, initially trained as a urologist, uh, secondarily trained to do renal transplantation, and then uh, went on to do yet another fellowship in urological oncology. My specialty is kidney cancer and bladder cancer. I do prostate as well, but largely kidney cancer. I've written quite a lot of papers on the topic, numbering over 500, including chapters and peer-reviewed papers. And over the course of time, I have come to understand the questions of cancer in, a, I hope, a very sort of you know unique way to sort of the benefit of patients. Okay. What is the scale of the cancer burden in the U.S.? Well, currently, one in every two patients in the U.S. will be diagnosed with cancer in his or her lifetime. And roughly one in three or one in four will die of their disease. It is the second leading cause of death after coronary disease in the U.S. On a global scale, it's about 19 million people with cancer and about 10 million deaths from cancer globally. So put in a sort of a more consumptive way, about 50% of people across the globe who have cancer will die of their disease. In the United States, that's about 25 to 30%. So we do a little bit better than the survival rates across the world, uh, but it's still a major health problem. Wow, that's big numbers. And how do people perceive cancer changing? So cancer is a big, scary word for most patients, obviously. And most patients perceive cancer as a death sentence. Most patients see cancer as a homogeneous black box one that is hard to understand, one that implies, you know, a change in their life, their quality of life, treatments that they will have to endure. Uh, And so cancer has become, in most languages, you know, sort of one of the words people most seek to avoid. The conversations around it change one's lives and those that they love dramatically. Fortunately, I can say over the course of the last uh, two or three decades, there's been great progress. And that progress is translated into improved disease-specific outcomes, cancer-specific outcomes, longer survival rates. But nonetheless, we've got a way to go. So what means do we have to prevent cancer? Well, let me sort of expand a little bit on the uh, last question a little bit. I'd like to sort of start by saying that cancer is no longer considered a homogeneous event. 
That is to say that um, most people's perceptions of cancer is that it is sort of, a, you know, whether it's of, you know, one organ or the other, is that cancer is cancer is cancer. And that really isn't true. Cancer of any organ is a series of diseases. If you take, for example, the most basic measure of cancer, that is the histology of the cancer, the cancer I know the best is kidney cancer. There are at least 20 and growing different histologies of kidney cancer. So the first point I make to patients is always that their cancer is unique and that kidney cancer, for example, and the same can be said for most other cancers, is not one disease. It's many diseases. Uh, and the more uh, we understand the molecular basis of cancer, the more we understand just how diverse the disease is. I will sort of point to uh, a number of studies really pioneered by Charlie Swanton at University College of London, uh, who published on the ecosystem that is cancer. And over the course of the last two or three decades, I've come to understand cancer far more as an ecosystem. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. I like to use metaphors and analogies quite a bit. In the past, cancer was, as I said, this equally awful disease that affected people terribly and consistently led to poor outcomes and cancer-specific death. Instead, what Charlie has taught us and others is that, one, the origins of cancer occurred decades before cancer is diagnosed. For example, in the field of kidney cancer, you may be diagnosed on average between 55 and 65 years old, but the molecular events that uh, sort of cause kidney cancer are likely to happen in the second decade of life or even earlier. And that is a shocking, shocking statistic that cancer is 40 years, in some cases, in the making. So what happens when cancer occurs? What happens is there are a series of genetic mistakes or molecular events. Those genetic mistakes may be identified by the machinery of one's you know, cellular mechanisms, that is, the DNA repair mechanisms. If those mistakes are repaired, cancer is averted. If those mistakes are not repaired or averted, then cancer will proceed. And so what happens is over the course of the next two or three decades, you know, there may be neoantigens or new proteins made by those mutant cells. Those may be recognized by the immune system. They may be terminated at that point, And then cancer is once again averted or avoided. However, if those genomic mistakes are not identified, if they're not corrected by the DNA mismatch repair machinery, or if the immune system is unable to identify those as, as neoantigens or cancer antigens, then it progresses and proceeds. And so I use two metaphors. The first is that of a Xerox machine, and by which I mean, so if I were to give you a copy of your favorite book, and I was to ask you to make a thousand copies of that book, and then I was asked to ask you to give each of those copies to a thousand of your friends, who then made a thousand copies, and so on and so on and so on. Generations later, you know, the P's in that book might start to look like O's. And in some cases, the O's might start to look like C's. And those can be random mistakes during the copying process. And sometimes a proofreader might identify those 
And they might find that those mistakes can be corrected. And other times those mistakes might go unnoticed. And if they go unnoticed, then you know you might hand that to somebody else who is to read the book and they might sort of tear out a couple of pages because that makes no sense. But if they don't tear out those pages, then the book becomes, quite frankly, unreadable. And that's a similar type of sort of series of events that occurs in cancer over decades, in most cases, not in all cases, but in most cases. It's kind of like an ecosystem, if you will, in a pond. A pond might have dozens or hundreds or thousands of various bacteria. Over the course of the life cycle of that pond, whether it's the sunlight or the environment or acid rain or what have you, there are stresses that occur that may kill some strains and others may live and grow stronger. And ultimately, the same thing happens in the ecosystem that is cancer. That is to say that, you know, there are endogenous stresses that might eliminate some mutant clones, and there are exogenous stresses that might eliminate or strengthen exogenous clones, internal or mutant clones, and then the cancer either diverts in one direction, a more benign or indolent form, or into another direction, which is a more aggressive or lethal form. So the concept of cancer has changed, uh, sort of to get back to the basics. It is no longer considered a single disease in any given organ. It's a series of diseases. And more appropriately, in any given person, it is a personal disease, depending upon the various you know, defense mechanisms that person's body is able to mount or not mount. So I hope that makes sense, but it is a rethink of cancer. You know, from the very basic beginning of cancer, which can be what we call a stochastic event or random event, or can be induced by environmental influences. And so, you know, as I explain that to many patients, many patients don't really like the notion that some cancers are just sort of replicative, random events. They like to believe that, or maybe it's more sort of easily understood that when something like this happens to them, that it must be something that they've done or were exposed to. Well, in point of fact, as we are understanding cancer, it may actually be sort of, unfortunately, sometimes somewhat random. And so what we're left with 30 or 40 years down the road is this uh, massive clonal ecosystem that is unique to that person and that needs to be treated. So in, in terms of prevention, does that mean that prevention is actually not as possible as we thought? Well, we always like to seek control over that, which is sort of, you know, adverse. I would say that there are things that clearly do prevent cancer. There are environmental stressors, oxidative stressors, if you will, that most people believe can sort of damage DNA or more likely to sort of impair the replicative mechanisms so smoking is clearly the most common one, and there's a clear epidemiological association with smoking and many types of cancer. So yeah, there are ways to prevent cancer. The question is, is cancer completely preventable? Is it largely preventable, or is it marginally preventable? And I would say, you know, based upon what we know right now, probably it's less preventable than we once thought. Now, that's not very comforting to hear, you know, and there are clearly ways to prevent cancer. Don't smoke. Dietary interventions have really been studied. The data are somewhat mixed on that. But there are clearly things in one's diet that they can or should avoid. And it's good for the heart and it's good for the risks of cancer, particularly of the uh, GI tract. I think that that's probably the place where it's 
most well-established, and GI cancers represent a large swath of cancers. We call them the big four, right? Colon, breast, prostate, and lung. So I'd say for secretory organs, for organs that have sort of, you know, exposure to external stimuli like the respiratory tract, like the GI tract, that's probably where most of the preventative measures are most fruitful and where most of the interventions, you know, to avoid cancer are probably best spent. Thank you. And so sort of logically moving on from that, how effective is screening? So the question of screening for cancer is a really tricky one because the more you dial up screening, the more cancers you will identify, which in the past has been considered to be a very good thing because cancer was considered to be universally fatal. Now we are starting to understand that there are certain types of cancers that you will die with, not die from. And I think that in the last decade or so, people recognize that and sort of, you know, the model cancer in that regard is prostate cancer, right? So the natural history of prostate cancer may be measured in decades. And many men will die with prostate cancer, not from prostate cancer. Now that's not to mitigate the fact that death from prostate cancer is very real. In the United States, I'll give you some examples, about 170, 180,000 men per year die diagnosed with prostate cancer. Roughly 25,000 men or 30,000 men die from prostate cancer. So roughly speaking, that's about 12 to 15% of men with prostate cancer die from prostate cancer. So if you take those numbers and you look at them critically, you'll say, well, that means if we treated all of those men, then we're treating many of them successfully, or alternatively, we didn't need to treat all of them, right? So that's the problem with screening. Dial it up too tight and you wind up identifying cancers that, you know, don't need to be treated and the treatment may harm people. Dial it down too much and you'll miss the cancers that, you know, where therapies, early therapies may have benefited. I always like in screening, in the use of metaphors, uh, fishing. So I'm not much of a fisherman, but I can say that, you know, if you were to scrape the ocean with a tightly woven net, you'll catch a lot of minnows and you'll catch a lot of sharks. And if the goal is to identify the sharks, that is the aggressive cancers, a tight net will catch more sharks, but it'll also catch more minnows. And the same thing can be said for a loosely woven net. Scrape the bottom of the ocean, you'll miss all the minnows, and you'll probably miss a bunch of small sharks too. And so the idea of screening is to sort of figure out how tightly that net should be woven. Now, whether it's mammography or PSA or colonoscopy or low-dose lung cancer screening, it's finding the right population to screen. It's having a test that's sensitive enough and specific enough, and that trade-off is important. That's the tightly woven net or the loosely woven net to identify those who can best benefit from early intervention. So do you have prostate cancer screening in the U.S.? So it's controversial. And so the U.S. Preventative Task Force weighed in on prostate cancer screening via PSA, and they gave it a recommendation of a D grade, meaning don't do it, basically. Mm. And I think that that was met with some, you know, some applause by some because those that believe that many men were harmed by over-intervention rightfully felt that some men who had their prostate removed or radiated suffered unnecessary quality of life impediments, whether it's you know erectile urinary dysfunction. But correctly, those who advocated for screening said, well, it prevented many prostate cancer deaths. And if you look at sort of how screening sort of was imposed in the 90s, it was probably a way too broad and somewhat dialed up too tightly, if you will. They then came back with a re-evaluation of screening via PSA, and they gave it a C recommendation, sort of better than D, but not quite a B. 
And then so they ask for what they call shared decision-making. Make sure that patients understand the trade-offs between screening and prostate biopsy and prostate cancer treatment. And so if you look how that sort of filtered through the guidelines, most national guidelines and sort of international guidelines recommend that prostate cancer screening, certainly for men at risk, so those with strong family history, those of African-American descent or African descent, higher risk populations, earlier prostate cancer screening in those populations. But for men that don't have sort of those risk factors, then it becomes shared decision-making, meaning you don't universally get a PSA and just throw it in as part of the metabolic profile that you might otherwise get annually. But you'd have to sort of speak to the patient, make sure that they understand these trade-offs. Thank you. Following on from the success of HPV vaccination, which has been very successful in the UK, is viral origin worth exploring as a preventive possibility for many other cancers? Well, the concept of virally mediated cancers, I'm happy to say, really emerged from the science from our institution in the 1960s and 70s. One of our scientists was a gentleman named Baruch Blumberg, and Dr. Blumberg won the Nobel Prize from our institution, I think it was in 76, and it was based on the data associating hepatitis with liver cancer. And he actually was one of the first to develop the hepatitis vaccine. And so virally mediated cancers, virally induced cancers, really it's a genomic event once again, right? The viral DNA inserts into the host DNA and it induces proliferative responses. And so we now know that virally mediated cancers are not insignificant and you know, whether it's penile cancer in men, cervical cancer in women, head neck cancer in both genders, virally mediated liver cancer, which is a phenomenon that causes a great deal of worldwide morbidity, Epstein-Barr virus, which inserts into sort of Burkitt's lymphoma and other forms of cancer. And there is a great search for sort of viral DNA in the midst of many other solid and liquid types of tumors. And so, of course, it begs the question you ask, which is, is it therefore preventable through vaccination? And the answer appears to be yes. Many of the vaccinations occur in people in their age of 10 and 20 and 30 years old in the first decade or two of life. And those cancers would not become sort of, you know, clinically apparent until they're in their fifth or sixth decade of life. So the extent to which vaccination prevents these types of virally mediated cancers may not be fully known for another decade or two because, you know, mass vaccination for HPV is really something in the last decade or 15 years or so. And of course, you know, are you hitting the right viral types, subtypes? You know, uh, there was initially a four-valent you know, type of HPV vaccine. Now I think it's up to nine. So, you know, it, it is, you know, a nuanced question, but I think ultimately a vaccination against virally mediated cancers is something that will sort of be a preventative effect and the full extent of which we'll sort of know in relatively short order. Fascinating. Uh, you spoke about screening and prevention. So what are the buzzwords in terms of diagnosis of cancer? The diagnostics of cancer as they're evolving really revolve around radiographic imaging and new forms of radiographic imaging. And then the holy grail is serum-based testing, right? So let's go to diagnostic imaging first. So increasingly, we're finding molecular diagnostics, that is molecular radiographic diagnostics, to be increasingly useful. 
PET scan is the earliest form of this, right? So it takes advantage of sort of the increased cellular metabolism of sugar that can be identified in cancer cells. Rapidly dividing cancer cells need a lot of energy, and that energy sort of, you know, requires metabolism, and that meta that increased metabolism can be sort of identified via F18 PET scanning. But increasingly, certainly in my field, in prostate cancer and kidney cancer, we have identified new antigens on the surface of cancer cells that can be targeted with monoclonal antibodies, that can be tagged to radio tracers, that can be detected, you know, with PET scanners. And so that is sort of, you know, a new way to identify cancer, not just as a, an initial diagnostic test, but increasingly and probably more appropriately currently to stage patients with cancer. So what we're finding is we used to see patients as, you know, stage one or two or three or four, and you would think that a patient is stage one based upon a CAT scan or an MRI, when in fact, if you lose molecular diagnostic imaging, you might find that they're actually stage three or four. So we see this, this sort of shifting of stages, if you will, based upon these new, you know, molecular, you know, imaging techniques. And so that really speaks of, you know, the fact that some cancers are really early on sort of progressing to systemic disease much earlier than we thought. So what would ordinarily have happened in the past is you'd have taken a person like that to surgery, you'd have removed the tumor, and then you would have found that they've recurred a year or two later. And, you know, you wouldn't have sort of known that based upon contemporary imaging modalities. But with newer imaging modalities, you know, you might change the way you approach that tumor because you realize that either there's nodal involvement earlier than you would have identified because on CT scan, the nodes look normal, but on molecular imaging, they don't. And so we're using that and we're using functional imaging as well. So we're starting to take advantage of what's called the Warburg effect, which is where sort of, you know, these cancers have a, a real rapid, you know, a metabolism requirement. So whether it's, you know, identifying, you know, new imaging techniques, like for example, a Sestamibi scan for kidney cancer, which looks at the mitochondrial functions, you know, for benign tumors versus malignant tumors, or, a, you know, what's called a G250 scan, which looks at carbonic anhydrase expression in the kidney cancer. So that's sort of one sort of new way of diagnosis, and that's molecular, you know, imaging. And the second way is, of course, the holy grail is get a blood test. It still amazes me that many patients today, you're counseling them about their cancer, and they say, well, I just had blood tests six months ago. How come they didn't see it? You know, there is this perception that, you know, among the lady that cancer can be detected in the blood. And, and point to fact, it's really a, a new event that you can start to identify circulating tumor cells or circulating tumor DNA. You know, there's a company out there called Grail and they have a multi-cancer early detection test. It is evolving. I don't know that we really know how to translate that into, into practice right now, but they are trying to do screening studies. And I think that what this sort of suggests is, again, like I said before, that the molecular underpinnings of cancer may be decades in the making, that circulating tumor DNA or circulating tumor cells may be a far earlier event than we ever sort of recognized, that we really don't know how to treat them right yet because I suspect 
that circulating tumor DNA doesn't always mean that people will sort of progress to stage four disease. I'll give you an example. When I was a medical student, you know, I remember sort of my molecular biology professor telling us that we all become bacteremic when we brush our teeth. And I thought that was really quite interesting. So, you know, there's a lot of flora in your mouth. You brush your teeth, you bristle up your um, your gums, and, you know, you may be able to detect some bacteria in the blood. And of course, you know, your natural host defense systems, you know, prevent you from becoming septic, you know, after you brush your teeth by and large, right? And I think something, to, to some extent, you know, what we're learning in cancer is that shed tumor cells or shed tumor DNA may in some cases be early events. Those early events may be cleared by the hosts or the patient's natural immune system. And do we always need to treat that? Probably not. And so what we're going to go through is we're going to go through this re-evolution of understanding, you know, as we're able to detect circulating tumor DNA, do you give adjuvant therapy to people, you know, that you find it in? Do you give neoadjuvant therapy to people that you find it in? Or is it sometimes meaningless that you find that? Is it just an early event that, you know, the host may be able to clear? And all those questions really sort of are unanswered right now because we're just developing the technology to identify these serum, you know, events. Yeah, that's interesting. So even though we have the technology, we have to be careful not to sort of overuse it and end up overdiagnosing condition or overtreating something that may not necessarily be something that needs treatment. That's right. I mean, in the U.S., we have, although nobody kind of puts it this way, and I think it's probably true for most patients with cancer, you find the cancer, you fix the cancer. I call it the find it, fix it mentality, right? And and so the truth of the matter is, you know, because of the uncertainty and because of the fear, most people will sort of want something done, even if that something can be somewhat morbid or cause, you know, a lot of adverse effects. And so, you know, I, I don't know that we're going to enter this new phase of serum biomarkers and cancer identifying techniques with that same attitude, because frankly, as we get better and better systemic therapies, as we understand how to treat the cancer better at the systemic level, we can be a little bit more nuanced in the approach to these things. In other words, when you didn't have any effective systemic therapies, everything was treated, for example, surgically or with radiotherapy. The more effective the systemic therapies the less necessary some of the early interventions seem to become. And I don't mean to suggest that everybody can be cured with systemic therapy. They can't be. But when you have some tools in the toolbox, you can afford yourself a little bit more introspection into the decisions that you make. Makes sense. All right. You have a specific cancer that you'd like to talk about and describe what's happening in the area. Well, my field of expertise is really kidney cancer. So kidney cancer in the U.S. affects about 70,000 people a year. And again, uh, about um, one-third of them die of their disease. And as we've talked about in the past, I think kidney cancer was this big black box. It was sort of universally fatal in most cases. In fact, when I first started training, if you had metastatic kidney cancer, you had about 10 months to live. So stage four kidney cancer was about 10 months. There was very little effective therapy. It was basically interferon, which didn't really work in various iterations. There were a couple of chemotherapeutics. It is the prototype of chemoresistant tumors. That was it. You, you didn't have much. So sometimes we would 
take people to surgery to remove the primary, their kidney and the primary tumor. And in rare occasions, that would be associated with a little bit of an extension of life, but it was measured in weeks or months, not in years. And so what happened over the course of the last two decades, and actually even before that, is we started to really understand what the molecular events of kidney cancer were. And this is sort of, I alluded to this with Charles Swanton's data in TraceRx. The TraceRx study, which was published in Cell as a trilogy, I think in 2018 or 2019, really revolutionized how people think about kidney cancer and more globally about the ecosystem that is cancer I was mentioning before. But before that, there were important discoveries made about which genes are mutated in kidney cancer. And that was done through this series of physical mapping in families that had hereditary kidney cancer, something called von Hippel-Lindau, VHL disease. And so, you know, we then knew that, you know, it was the short arm of the third chromosome that was most often mutated. And then we started to see where there were deletions or insertions or frame shift mutations or various point mutations. And then we started to understand that what that gene does is that gene controls angiogenesis or the creation of new cells. And then we started to identify therapeutics and, and create therapeutics that can prevent neoangiogenesis. So that's where the tyrosine kinase inhibitors came in. And once we had tyrosine kinase inhibitors and we started to recognize that by blocking the mutant pathway of the 3PVHL gene, we can start to extend lives then we started to sort of use that in the adjuvant and in the neoadjuvant setting. And then we started to develop, you know, well, that led to sort of immunotherapies or that, that next evolution was immunotherapies. It's always been noted that kidney cancer was a immunologically active tumor, that there were T cells infiltrating and lymphocytes infiltrating these large kidney cancers. And yet, in fact, when I was at the Cleveland Clinic, my research was on how does the tumor suppress the immune system in the local tumor environment? Well, winds up that there's, you know, the PD pathway, the program death pathway. And so that led to PD1 inhibitors and PDL inhibitors. And, and that was another revolutionary change. So in the last 15 or 20 years, we've gone from an overall survival of a stage four disease of 10 months to an overall survival of about 50 months, 5X right? That's not a home run. You know, some people are getting cured, but not enough. But you know, you've just increased life expectancy with maybe not much more toxicity. In fact, you can argue maybe it was a little less toxicity than you were giving people with drugs that weren't working before. So that's on the stage four side of kidney cancer, right? So, you know, 5X improvement in overall survival, about 60 to 70% of people respond to these drugs now with radiographic response rates, disease-free survival that's measured in years. So, that's on the aggressive stage four kidney cancer part. On the early part, well, just like we were talking about before with screening, you know, we identify these small renal masses for people going into emergency wards and getting scanned for gallbladder pain, and you identify a small kidney mass. And in the past, because we had no other way of treating this, all those patients got surgery. So some of them would be rendered dialysis dependent or having chronic kidney disease. And so one of my research efforts in the last 20 years was to identify patients who could be monitored with their small renal masses, who didn't need treatment. And so just like I was describing before with prostate cancer, extending patients, the idea and sort of the experience with monitoring prostate cancer, we started monitoring patients with small kidney cancers. And we identified that in patients with kidney cancers less than three centimeters, the majority of those patients 
are not destined to metastasize, that you can monitor them for one or two or four years. And if they're growing, and many of them will grow very slowly, the metastatic rate is very low. So what that suggests is if you're 75 or 80 years old and you're in poor health, you've got poor kidney function, don't do an operation for an incidentally detected small renal mass that those patients on the earlier part of that sort of evolution are unlikely to sort of die of their disease. On the later part of their evolution, if they've got advanced or metastatic disease, you've now got therapeutics that can meaningfully impact overall cancer-specific survival. Uh, and so we're attacking it from both ends, from those with advanced disease, from those with sort of, you know, indolent disease, and we're trying to sort of match, as I say, the ecosystem in any given patient to their competing health risks. Worst thing that I think a, a surgeon in this field can do is to take an elderly patient with a small renal mass and render them either dialysis-dependent or at risk of post-operative morbidity for a small renal mass that otherwise you know, was never destined to harm them. And so that nuance wasn't possible a decade or two ago. Thank you. It's fascinating. Yeah, amazing. And, and you mentioned earlier on about the personalization of approach is more on the agenda now. How do you think that's going to develop? Well, the holy grail there is I were to be able to biopsy or take a sample of one's tumor and read their ecosystem, if you will, sort of get a genomic landscape within their tumor, compare it to other people's genomic landscapes and have outcomes data to say, if you have this, then you will have that outcome. That is the predictive promise, if you will, uh, of cancer medicine in the future, right? We're, we're not there. We're just at the describing phase right now. Can you describe the tumor genomic burden of any given individual? And frankly, how does it differ, not just from another individual, but how does the tumor profile, the genomic profile differ for the cancer that started in the, in the kidney, for example, but metastasized to the lung versus metastasized to the liver versus metastasized to the bone? So again, getting back to my example, the clonality of cancer, the primary multiple thousands of clones, the genomic clones in someone's primary, some of which may go to the liver, some of which may go to the lung, they may be very different. And so, you know, ultimately understanding that heterogeneity, you know, within an individual, understanding sort of the various branch points and the evolution of cancer in one individual versus another individual, and understanding where you can intervene for therapeutic benefit is the promise of personalized medicine. Very interesting. And do you think that in maybe 10 years, patients will be able to understand and live with advice that, yep, you've got cancer, but it's better not to do anything about it at that stage? I mean, how far off are patients being able to kind of live with that kind of knowledge and cope with it? Well, so you're asking me both a medical question and sort of the, a psychology of cancer and survivorship question. I would say this, decades ago, physicians were not having those conversations with patients because it was universally expected or accepted that patients would not want to live with the question of cancer, the burden of cancer hanging over their heads. That seems logical. And I think probably part of it was a misunderstanding of cancer. As I alluded to before, cancer was a black box that was fully and completely misunderstood as a universally lethal event. As we've become better, say, in prostate cancer, convincing men that treatment is sometimes worse than non-treatment. And frankly, when I give these types of lectures in my sort of you know professional societies, 
I'm often misunderstood. I'm not saying don't treat patients with cancer. I'm saying, you know, treat those that need treatment, watch those that can be watched. And sometimes, frankly, you don't know that you can tell the difference, right? And so what happens with prostate cancer, again, using that as a model, you monitor patients with lower-risk prostate cancer. As you monitor them, you're monitoring them for biological signals, if you will, that things are changing, whether that's based upon PSA or MRI or, or tumor biopsy. You're looking for those types of changes. Now, some patients will fatigue from that stress. It is stressful to believe I have cancer and they're doing nothing. I have cancer and I need to go in for yet another biopsy. You know what? In the end, just do something so I don't have to have this, you know, sword hanging over my head. So some people will feel that way. Other people will feel empowered to make the decision on their own based upon their understanding of the disease and, and how they sort of value the quality of their life or the quantity of their life and what those trade-offs are. And yet other people will sort of walk away from it and sort of try to sort of ignore the thing altogether because, you know, they were told once they had an unknown cancer, they'd like to believe that and move on. And so there will be, as you can imagine, sort of all sorts of reactions to this. But in the main, I think that patients are getting far more comfortable that not all cancers need to be treated. And whether it's a small renal mass, whether it's an indolent prostate cancer, in some cases, whether it's a small lung nodule that may or may not be an early indolent form of lung cancer, there are example after example where we are sort of trying to insert into the conversation, the fact that uh, not all cancers are created equal, not all patients have equal threats, and it all has to be measured against other health events in one's life, anticipated longevity, and issues surrounding sort of the quality of your life and the timing of your death. Thank you. We hear about all sorts of technological and research advances. How long does it generally take before these become part of clinical practice at the coalface? So depending upon what the technological or scientific advance is, it can take as short as three to five years and as long as 10 to 15 years. So if you just bucket this into sort of the advances in the basic science, the advances into the translational science, and the advances in the clinical science, as you can imagine, those advances in the basic science have a longer sort of arc to sort of translate into, you know, clinically meaningful tools. So, you know, if you just use the drug life cycle as an example of this, certainly in the U.S., a drug life cycle from sort of preclinical discovery to preclinical work to animal, you know, models to moving it into, you know, phase one or phase two or phase three settings to FDA approval. You know, that life cycle may be somewhere in the 10 to 15 year range and cost estimates are, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars and 90% of them fail. And that's just the reality that 90% of drugs that are start off from the beginning of the funnel at the end of the funnel, you know, are no longer there. When it comes to imaging modalities, the life cycle is shorter. When it comes to technological or device changes, the life cycle is yet even shorter. So whether it's a new tool in the operating room or some sort of new tool, you know, for radiotherapy, that may be three to five years for that uh, to sort of be approved and in, in clinical use. But in terms of systemic therapies and drugs that we ingest or in inject, that's a decade in the making. Mm, got a long time. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to ask you about the role of clinical education. So how do you see outcomes changing in the next two to five years? And what's the role of clinical education in these changes? Well, the field is changing so rapidly. It's very hard to stay abreast of it all. Especially, you know, I mean, for specialists like me, I even in the narrow field of kidney cancer 
have to be updated at our meetings quarterly just to sort of stay abreast with all the many clinical trials and the results and the comparators and sort of the evolving science. I don't imagine how somebody in general practice can sort of keep in tune with this. And so you have to find a trusted source. The trusted source can be sort of local, it could be regional, it could be global, it could be multiple avenues and multiple ways to deliver education. But, you know, the thing that most physicians love about the field is that it's a lifelong learning event. In the end, it has to start in medical school and it never ends. So some of us will see, you know, CPD or CME, as we call it in the States, to be somewhat of an obligation. But in point of fact, you know, it's a necessary one because things change so rapidly. Absolutely. I think at every level in medicine, you have to keep training yourself. So at your center, what education would you like to see clinicians undertake in the next maybe six months to a year? Well, we have our staple of grand rounds and morbidity and mortality reports and multidisciplinary tumor boards. And so that is all sort of standard. We continue to try to evolve how we deliver those that content and sort of who's part of that content and how to increase sort of the reach of that content and how to make it virtual and how to make it recordable. And I think that, you know, one of the things that we really focus on, and it's an uncomfortable place for physicians to be, is sort of particularly in the um, morbidity and mortality conferences, you know, what parts of things that patients experience are preventable and what parts are simply, you know, a function of the risks that are inherent to the to the field. So introspection, I think, is an important part of education. Most physicians, when they go to obesity and mortality reports, you know, tend in general to look outside of themselves for why something happened. It's a natural tendency. I try to force the team to think about the sort of decisions we make and how those decisions may have played out to the benefit of the patient or to the detriment of the patient. And most of the time, in most centers, you know, they work to the benefit of the patient. I mean, we're not talking about massive complication rates. You're talking about 2 to 5% complication rates. You know, we, we measure them in very objective ways. We use sort of what we call the clavian dindo classification in the surgical realm. We have quality data sets. You know, the American College of Surgeons has something called the, the NISQIP data and so we're very, very attuned to sort of that level of education. I'd say that there are ripples that that goes through. So you have your professional societies, you have your national meetings, and then you have your CPD or CME educators. And, and as I sort of think it through, most of us, you know, recognize that innovation and education go hand in hand. And so, you know, while, while many of us sort of will look at big pharma sort of askance, you know, as I said before, 90% of new therapies never get to market. It's the 10% that get to market that change the, the world and that change the way patients are treated. It's the 10% of innovations that have made stage four kidney cancer go from 10 months to survival to five years of survival. So if you just think about that in a very personal sense, what were you doing 10 months ago versus what were you like five years ago? I mean, that's a big difference, right? And that's what you're giving people with those innovations. And so staying attuned to them however you can whether it's through various CPD websites or whether it's through periodicals or digital, you know, means or virtual means, you know, find it wherever you can find it. And then finally, I'd say that in terms of education, when I was training, we didn't spend enough time, I suspect, on understanding the emotional component of cancer and understanding the emotional impact on patients and hearing their voice. And I think increasingly, certainly in the States, the patient's voice is becoming increasingly important in these decisions. Yeah. 
Wow, that's really insightful. And I think that's the same that's happening here as well. And we we do have an educational module on managing patient expectations, which is a big thing now in cancer oncology. So thank you. Yes. I mean, the buzzword in the U.S. is shared decision-making, right? And it sounds sort of contrived, but in point of fact, years ago, a patient would be sitting in clinic and the doctor would walk in and he or she would sort of give the recommendation, the patient would unconditionally accept that recommendation. And it became increasingly hard to sort of speak of the various options and the various trade-offs and the various risks. I spend much of my time trying to communicate that effectively because patients are faced with uncertainty when they have a diagnosis. The physician is faced, in fairness, with uncertainty about what the natural history of that disease may bring and you're giving your best estimate of what that intervention might mean, how it might benefit them, but also what the risks might be. And patients have different risk tolerance. They have a different perception of how they want to live their life and what they're willing to trade off. To one person who just wants their cancer removed and will accept the consequences of that, that's much different than somebody else who values sort of the quality of their life above the quantity of their life. And that's shared decision-making. Fair enough. Yeah. Thank you. So could you talk about someone, a patient or a professional, who's been a real inspiration to you in your oncology practice? Well, I have many pictures of patients on my blotter and on my chalkboard, if you will. Each of them has a unique story. I think being a physician is indeed a privilege because you meet people in very critical times of their lives. So I've learned something from many of them, and in fact, in some cases, each of them, sometimes good, sometimes bad. It's always been a sort of a personal journey to sort of be introspective in that regard. In terms of my professional career, like most people, I've had you know very uh, important and influential mentors. I entered the field of medicine. No one had been a physician. It was sort of, you know, an aspiration of other people in my family. Uh, my father, who was an immigrant, you know, really did not, um, you know, have the ability. So he, he gave me that chance, you know, so he was an inspiration, obviously. And then, uh, you know, I didn't know what field to go into. And we were talking about this, I think, off before. I think the field that a lot of physicians go into is sort of, you know, the branch points are, you know, is there anybody in my family who's done that before that can give me advice, you know, right. um, and so that they may choose on that basis. And if not, you know, it's who I am and who I meet. Am I more surgical or am I more medical? You know, am I more sort of scientific or am I more utilitarian? Did I meet Dr. X or did I meet Dr. Y? Where did I go to medical school? You know, and how does that influence the choices? And that's not surprising. That's no different than how many people make their career and life decisions along the way. So I was very fortunate to meet influential people at Memorial Sloan Kettering when I was training there at New York Presbyterian Hospital when I was training there, and at the Cleveland Clinic when I was training there. And I, I owe a debt of gratitude to each of them. I mean, it's been said that you stand on the shoulders of the people that came before you, and I think that's very true in medicine. Well, thank you so much for all your insights today. It's been really fascinating to talk about cancer screening, diagnosis, treatment, and what the future may hold in terms of personalization. So thank you very much for joining us today. Well, thank you. It's an exciting time to be part of this conversation. Thanks for listening today. On MIMS Learning, you can find a wealth of resources related to cancer diagnosis and treatment, including guidance updates on the use of new therapies and diagnostics, webinars about cancer diagnostics, 
learning modules on individual types of cancer, and much more. You can find links below on the podcast player description. Don't miss our next episode of Clinical Update, in which we discuss the module that Sangeeta mentioned earlier about dealing with cancer patients' expectations. She also interviews gastroenterologist Dr Juliet Lowry about COVID and the gut. So do join us then.